Thanks for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is the head of event strategy for World Table Tennis, Stephen Duckett. WTT is the newly launched commercial arm of the International Table Tennis Federation. So Stephen is quite literally creating a league where one previously had not existed. The way that the, the, the sport was run, it was starting to fall behind what was happening with other sports. We sat down and decided that we needed to launch a, a brand new tour. And it sort of was quite lucky for us in that all of the ITTF's existing commercial rights and its tournament licenses and its broadcast agreements were all coming to an end at exactly the same time. Stephen describes being in a brand new organization as having a blank canvas on which to make a piece of art. But he also concedes there are innumerable layers that go into creating a league from scratch. You sort of make one decision and, and all of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle move around it. And that's basically the way that we've approached it as a team is that we have a big jigsaw puzzle and we've got to put all the pieces in the, in the right spot. The fifth most popular sport in the world, table tennis has a huge global following due in part to its prominence in Asia. It was declared in 1952 as the national sport of China. In 1971, the birth of ping pong diplomacy, and that was sort of a breaking of, of relations or, or an improvement of relations between the United States and China. Stephen and his colleagues have ambitious international goals for WTT, and he shares how he approaches working in varied markets and cultures. You go in with an open mind. You, you have to, you can't go in thinking what you want to do is going to get done. And if you, if you ever go into, either, I don't think it matters whether it's China or anywhere else in the world. If you go into a country and think it's going to be A, B, and C, it's definitely not. Check out credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discussed in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Stephen Duckett on Credentials Only. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me. I have to start with really a basic question, uh, and I'm, I'm coming at this from the United States, which is probably why I'm asking this question the way I am. Just how popular is the sport of table tennis? Oh, thanks, Pete, for having me on. Um, it's, uh, it's surprisingly popular, and I think the reason why um, table tennis is so popular because of its Asian influence. So when you have China as the national um, Table tennis is the national sport of China. You're tapping into a, a one billion um, person market already. So it's um, it gets a lot of its, its its fan base from there. But we have about one point one one billion um, fans worldwide. Um, we sit about fifth in terms of 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 sports around the world um, following table tennis. So sneakily um, quite popular, and even in the United States, it's quite popular um, when the Olympics are on. Um, it's actually one of the most watched sports um, in the Olympics in the United States. Okay, so I want to follow up on two things you said. First of all, it's fifth. I, I got to think that football slash soccer is, is ahead of it, probably number one. But what, what are the other sports that are ahead of it? So obviously football as the, as the sport in the world, uh, the, the largest sport in the world. And then cricket, football which being again, soccer to that American audience, soccer. Yeah. Yes, sorry, football being soccer. Um, and then cricket. That popularity from from the Indian market, another big, you know, one billion population size, allows cricket to dominate. Um, hockey, and then um, which I was quite surprised with, considering. And, and I think when when they talk now, about hockey, I think they put both together. 
Oh, both. So, okay, so both field hockey and ice and hockey. And ice okay. hockey. So it's it's, okay. it's clustered clustered together. Um, uh, tennis, um, and then table tennis. So um, quite surprising. American football is actually on the list where um, we're five spots ahead of American football. That's a pretty good place to be. You also said it's the national sport of China and you, you alluded to a billion people in China. What does that mean? It's a national sport. Is that in terms of participation in terms of it's just what everybody watches? Is it the most celebrated sport, all of the above? What does that mean? So table tennis in, in China is extremely um, important for them. It's actually a source of national pride. So um, in 1952, the, the Chinese government declared ping pong or um, and actually the, in Chinese, it's ping pong chou, which means um, um, table tennis. Um, and it's, it was declared in 1952 as the national sport of China. And then um, in 1971, the birth of ping pong diplomacy. And that was sort of a breaking of, of relations or, or an improvement of relations between the United States and China. So um, some, some athletes between the two countries got together um, and, and played table tennis for the first time. And that's how um, diplomatic ties between the United States and China sort of came to life. So next year will be the, the 40th anniversary of the establishment of ties, diplomatic ties between the United States and China. So um, for them, it, it's, it's everywhere. Tables all across the, the country. Um, everyone plays in the lunch break or before work or after work. It's actually part of um, a student's high school process so um you have to play you have to be examined on playing table tennis and so you can see how important it is for them and the fact that they've created 116 world champions um almost 30 olympic gold medalists 150 world world champion medals so um it's for them it's massive it's it is a it's definitely you know 100 a way of their life and then do the Chinese, I mean, you just listed off a lot of great stats, but are they pretty much dominating or are there other pockets of popularity around the world? So they dominate table tennis completely. Um, if you look at the men's and women's rankings, um, I think off the top of my head, seven of the, the top eight women were from China. Um, four of the top five men are also from China. Um, the second market behind, um, and, and that's, that is both a good thing if you're looking at the growth of the sport and and you know the commercial side of the business because you're obviously every sport wants to grow its product in china we're actually already there um the flip side of that is it has its own pitfalls and and i'm happy to speak about that um in a moment but in terms of other markets um table tennis actually started in the uk in 1926 or was officially the ittf was sort of officially um, created and that's where that's where the traditional home of table tennis is and and Europe dominated for a long time and then but then the Asian countries came and learnt and then dominated so um, Japan is the second biggest sort of table tennis playing country and if you look at the at the rankings um, Ito is number two in the world but really pushing the, the Chinese right now for um, for a spot at, at that or challenging for that gold medal at the Olympics next year so um, that would be the two biggest markets. And, and I think what table tennis has is a, is a, is a perception problem in that people think it's an Asian sport when it's, when it truly is a global sport. You mentioned the ITTF. What does that acronym stand for? And what does that organization do? 
Sure. So the, the ITTF stands for the International Table Tennis Federation. Um, and they are the institutional governing body of table tennis. So they're comprised of all of the different member associations from around the world. So just like the IOC has, you know, the United States Olympic Committee and the Australian Olympic Committee and the British Olympic Committee, table tennis has um, the Australian Table Tennis Federation, the US Table Tennis Federation. So all those countries make up um, member federation. And then they, you, you have the ITTF as the, the governing body of the sport. And as sports go, my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but table tennis is one of the few that has almost complete participation from all the nations in the world. Is that an accurate perception? Yeah, we had our um, first virtual AGM last week, um, and we, we were talking that we have uh, almost 220 member federations um, as part of the ITTF, which I think um, is, is about the same as the Olympics, or perhaps even a little bit more. So... Um, it is the, one of the largest sports federations in the world. Again, with all of the, when, I, when I joined six months ago, all of these little pockets of information just sort of keep freaking me out and I keep learning bits and pieces about the sport every day and it's in, insane what, what, how big and, and how, um, how far the reach of table tennis is. <laughs> and you joined the organization. You're not really with the ITTF. Uh, you are working with them, but you're a kind of new division almost, who is it that you now work for and what is that relationship with the ITTF? Yep, that's um, 100% spot on. So I work for World Table Tennis, um, which is obviously abbreviated to WTT. Um, and WTT is the new commercial and professional arm of the ITTF. And so this organization now has the task of um, growing the game of, of table tennis around the world and um, looking, we've, we've created a structure that is very similar to what happens in some of the other sports around the world. So taking a look at what the ATP and w, uh, WTA do, um, Formula One, um, golf, and, and creating a structure that will allow us to um, grow the game and, 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 bring in sort of private enterprise and, and the opportunity for players to make more money and, and, and to put our product at the forefront of, of, of international sport. So the traditional ITTF model, um, all, all of the events run by national associations and, and we have some great national associations running events. Um, but just the way that the, the, the sport was run, it was starting to fall behind what was happening with other sports, you know, badminton and, um, darts and snooker and a lot of those sort of um, other sports that are that sit within um, this sort of cluster or tier of of where we sit um, we're starting to leapfrog us and, and sort of sat down and said hold on there's a problem here we, we're, we're we're popular we've got you know a strong Asian market we have traditional roots in Europe we should be at the forefront and there should be no reason why our athletes aren't being discussed in the same um, conversation as a Serena Williams or a Tiger Woods or a Roger Federer or a LeBron James. And so um, we sat down and decided that we needed to um, launch a, a brand new tour. And it sort of was quite lucky for us in that all of the ITTF's existing commercial rights and its tournament licenses and its broadcast agreements were all coming to an end at exactly the same time. So all of those expire this year, which was sort of the catalyst for us to be able to sit down and say, um, you know, let's, 
let's do this, let's go for it and, and launch WTT. So in 2021, we'll, we're, we're basically going to take um, table tennis to the next level and create a new, a new era for the sport. So these touring events, I, I literally cannot even imagine what these things look like. And I know some of the events that you guys are planning, the Grand Smashes, will have 64 men and 64 women. It's a lot going on. It's over 10 days, but still, what do those days look like? How many tables? Are, what type of venue are, are you hosting these events in? Yeah. So traditional, the, the traditional table tennis events, and, and for me, this is quite quite, you know, might be quite a surprise, but I've never seen a table tennis tournament. I've never been to one live. Um, obviously when I started in the role six months ago, the intention was to, to come up to Singapore where, where I'm based and, um, you know, go to our world championships, which were scheduled for, for Busan in Korea in, in March. And then of course, um, like everyone, the global pandemic hit and was, was, was locked out of Singapore for three months. So I was, was helping, set up this entire operation out of my apartment back in Sydney um, before coming up to Singapore. So I've never seen an event, but from what I've been told in the, in the, in the traditional model, we would have, you know, eight to 12 to 16 tables of table tennis being played at once. Um, so these big traditional sports halls um, and then just, you know, these seven meter by 14 meter spaces carved out on the floor. And it's just, um, you know, water wall table tennis action. But that, whilst that is great, and, and you know, you would have 400 or so players turn up in a, at an event, the structure of it wasn't very hard, was, was very hard for fans and broadcasters to understand. Um, you know, if you look at the tennis, the tennis space, you have your center court. Um, so, you know, the US Open has Arthur Ashe and Wimbledon has its center court and Australia has Rod Laver Arena. And table tennis doesn't have that until the final two days of the tournament when you gradually start taking each of the tables away until you get to one final table. And so when you're inside the arena, the focus is just about the competition and not, not the, the entire fan um, player media sponsor experience. So part of this remit of WTT is to, to take each of the different event tiers that we have and shrink it down and, and improve the product. So, um, all of our events now will go to four tables only. So um, that means we can start working with the new, the new hosts of the, of the events and try and create that, that more intimate center court style experience where we can put one table down, we can put the LED screens around it, we can have the big light show. Um, we're working with an agency in, in the UK um, right now that's looking at, you know, what is our version of the sport? Like, what does it look like for fans? And so doing market research around the markets where we need to be in as a, as a, as a sport for the future, but then also what those fans want. And I think, um, you know, there's always going to be the hardcore table tennis fans. Um, but we, um, you know, identified a couple of other market segments. And, and one of those, of course, is the people who love going for the entire event experience. Those that, you know, they want to go there. They want to take, you know, a couple of selfies in front of a, uh, you know, some sort of activation that's happening around the site, watch a little bit of sport, have some food and drinks and have a good time out. And so um, we'll be looking to, to do that through each of our events. And then of course, the way that we're doing that structure um, is, is, is kind of modeled on tennis, obviously having the grand smashes, which would be the four 
pillars of our sports are very similar to a grand slam or a major in golf. Um, so those four events, those 10 day events, but then we also have um, probably what's most exciting and unique is these champions events, which will be just single table events only. So just one table in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a and, and the good thing about table tennis is it's infrastructure light. So it's not like a tennis event where you need to resurface all of the courts and have large amounts of space to run an event. One table in the middle of anywhere. So, you know, building a glass dome and putting it in front of the opera house or setting the table up inside the opera house or going into a, a big nightclub or, or a museum or a library and, and, and building the infrastructure around it to then be able to have these events. And, and before the events used to be just wall to wall table tennis. So 10 a.m., people would turn up and they'd play until midnight to get through a schedule. So um, we're looking more now at breaks in play, um, you know, sessions, having musicians performing, comedians, artists, adding in that visual elements into the event that will make it more exciting for fans. Your title with this new organization is event strategy director. So it sounds like everything you've just talked about falls into this big bucket that you have. And I have to think it's kind of an exciting thing to really come in at the ground floor and imagine something brand new. You don't have anything. It sounds like that really is constraining you. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting opportunity. Um, obviously having, you know, been running a, a WTA event for the last five years as a tournament director, you, you have the ability to shape and mold one event. The, the most exciting thing here is um, I have a blank canvas. And so um, we have a, a fairly youthful team and, and part of my remit is to take everything that I've learned from traveling around the world to sporting events and, and running my own and helping create a new product for World Table Tennis and the ITTF. So um, very early on hit the floor, speaking to the players about, you know, things that happen at the events and, and what the events look like for them and, and what they would like to see. Um, but then, you know, engaging with the existing event holders um, to, to know how they run their events and then speaking internally with the team about what they would like to see. So connecting into the commercial department and connecting into the IT department, into the competition management, um, and then just going, right, here's the canvas let's you know make make it like a piece of art so the remit is 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 very very broad so um obviously first and foremost actually making um so when i joined the the ittf had already con commissioned deloitte and withers to sort of do a structure of how the the tour the tiers of events would look so we have our five um event tiers but then um, or, or our skeleton is probably the best way to put it. And then for me to come in and put the meat around it. So um, de determining what the, the draw sizes look like, um, what the entry requirements are, how the players would enter, um, what the events would look like um, in terms of that entertainment offering. Um, but then also, um, you know, the, the stuff that goes into to preparing a tour is very different from running one tournament. So. Um, you know, building a new rankings proposal to go with this uh, new officiating standards, sports science and medicine, um, you know, PR and marketing and, you know, the, the rules that the players have to follow for, for doing press and, and promotional activities at events. It's, um, it's all encompassing. And then on top of that, you know, writing a new rule book, 
And then our IT team are doing a complete overhaul of um, all of our existing I, um, IT systems. And then we have five or six different organizations also helping us with other parts of the business. So, um, you know, we had all our commercial inventory assessed for value. Um, we had to do the whole rebrand re and redesign. So having a creative agency do all of the new branding. Um, we're working with an agency in the United States um, on, the, on, a, on a new digital and data strategy. So app design, um, website design. So every single day you walk into the, into the work from home office. Um, although here in Singapore, we've actually got permission now to do two and a half days a week in the office. Um, so it's, it's been good to be able to have that face-to-face -face contact, but it's such a broad remit in the role that you never know what you're going to be talking about. And, um, it's exciting because you, you're basically creating a new sport or a new global sports tour from the ground up. And, and that is such a, such a big opportunity. One of the things that did stand out in reading up on the WTT is the prize money commitment. And it's a significant jump in what has normally been offered. Where do you envision that revenue coming from? Yeah, so um, table tennis is a bit of a funny one. Um, and, and one of the problems that the sport has is um, the players don't always commit to playing or didn't always commit to playing the ITTF events. Um, and this is because there are strong club competitions around the world. So Germany has a, has a very strong league. Russia has a strong league. Um, France has a strong league. China has its own um, sort of national series of events that the players play. And of course, Japan has its, um, has its league as well. And so there was almost a, uh, and, and, and also the tour, the, the sport never had sort of a, a cohesive whole of sport calendar. So um, putting that in place too, which is oh, its own minefield in a, I always joke that I'm up to like version 74 of the strategic calendar, trying to, trying to put, put the events in the right place for, um, for 2021 and then COVID hit. So we've, um, you know, that, that's been a mess in itself. Um, but prize money um, is a big thing. And, 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 you know, for the players, they're not, they're not golfers and they're not basketballers and they're not tennis players. So they're not making the prize money um, playing ITTF events. So they go and play these club competitions or, um, private promoters will set up like their own version of um, the Indian IPL for, for players to come and play for four or five events and, and have like an exhibition series. So part of this sort of remit of, of growing WTT is to make sure that the players are, uh, are, you know, prioritizing our events and playing our events. So that's where the new ranking structure um, forms one part of it and prize money forms the other. So the, the WTT itself is, um, has some private equity investments. So a lot of the funding um, comes from, or there is seed funding to grow the sport, which is critical. Um, but the, the way that the, the, the tour is set up is very much like the IOC um, or, or FIFA model in that um, each of the cities will pay a hosting fee to host the event. And so this um, money goes into sort of a central WTT revenue pool. And from there, we'll pay the prize money to the players. So, um, you know, we're guaranteeing for each of the hosts that that's a, not a spending commitment that they have to worry about. And we're also doing the broadcast production. So everything's being centralized through our office. So for events, when they're, when they're you know, setting up a budget, they look at all of the various cost factors. And two of those things have sort of been taken away 
and, and being taken care of by us. So that allows us to guarantee the prize money levels and make sure that the players are getting paid for the events they're playing. And, um, you know, as part of the role, you know, working out the prize money breakdowns and, and players never used to get paid prize money at qualifying. So now, you know, prize money will go from the top all the way through to qualifying. Um, and then the additional revenue in the sport, of course, comes from the broadcast broadcast rights. So um, WTT engaged IMG is a strategic partner. And uh, they will, they're, they're, their sole remit is obviously to do the broadcast production, but then also um, sell the, the our broadcast rights. But with us having uh, a, a a full control over who we're talking to and where we're selling those rights to. And then um, we brought in Philippe Lafloc, who is the ex um, chief, chief, um, chief commercial officer for FIFA and was also um, the head of marketing for UEFA. And he created along with, with the team there at UEFA, the champions league. So um, for, for someone like of his caliber to be joining world table tennis, it really shows you that he has, a lot of confidence in what we're trying to create. And so um, he's worked with our head of partnerships here in Singapore to, to create a new commercial structure. Um, and as I said, you know, when, when you've got a product that's popular in China and India, there's a, um, there's a player inside the top 10 from Brazil. Um, you know, Russia is, is very, you know, um, is very, is, is also a big supporter of the sport. And so, and our world championships in 2023 are going to South Africa. So all of a sudden we've got the BRICS countries as you know, our major markets and it just opens up so many more commercial opportunities um, into the sport. So we have this new commercial framework. So the team's actively out selling. So all the traditional revenue streams of, um, of, of, of bringing money into the, to the business, which hasn't happened before, which is how we're able to go so early to the market and say, you know, our prize money is doubling. For, for 2021 it's just going to grow exponentially from there so we talked about the excitement and the the opportunity that you have in coming in at the ground floor with this blank canvas the other side of that is i mean where do you start you you've listed off so many things with rankings and rules and protocols and staffing and and you got to go make these deals and you can have the best team in the world you still got to go sell these things to broadcasters to sponsors so uh, how have you coped with that, adding the layer of COVID notwithstanding? How do you cope with figuring out how to chip away at all these different things, knowing that you got to start your season? You know, you've got a schedule. You know when you have to hit the ground running. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, I, I'm, you know, six months into the role and I still don't know how we got to this point. Um, you know, a lot of and, and being based in Sydney and, and, you know, we're speaking to all of these, these governments. So, um, you know, regional governments in different cities, it, it's just, you know, you sort of look at it and go, and it's funny because you, you, you're running a sport, but not one part of the sport works in isolation. You can't just go, all right, let's go and find the events and then everything else will fall around it. You, you can't just go, all right, let's set the prize money and we'll guarantee that the players are going to play. You, you sort of make one decision and, and all of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle move around it. And that's basically the way that we've approached it as a team is that we have a big jigsaw puzzle and we've got to put all the pieces in the, in the right spot. So um, you have sort of your overarching sort of, it's almost like a waterfall. So you sort of have your commercial structure and you have your event 
structure and you know roughly what that what what that's got to look like and then you try and put the pieces around it so um when i first came in for me it was most critical that we actually establish what the product would look like so um the draw sizes um and then from there going into what the rankings would look like and of course that's not just a oh these are going to be our rankings it's locked in that needs to go through a, a governance process and it needs to be reviewed by the board and approved and goes through various committees so you can't just go yeah rankings bang it's done um but first and foremost we wanted to be able to tell the story of the sport that's what um i came in and said to the guys i said you know table tennis is a great story but the message doesn't get out so let's put all of the building blocks in place that can allow us to go to market and do that and so um we've sort of been selling the dream and and now it's time for us to start or sort of you know bringing that to life so um the, the frustrating thing with covid is that we sort of mapped everything out for 2021 we had all these great conversations with different cities around the world and then you know covid hit and and we had to sort of stop and almost start again and go okay so what's our what's our backup plan here we we've, we've got this opportunity to launch a new sport but we don't know if we're going to be able to have players travel to events and and all that sort of stuff so we we took a, a decision pretty early because we wanted to guarantee that we'd have events and and so we've got these playing hubs in in 2021 to to guarantee you know WTT gets off the ground um but yeah there's no going back to the question there's no um once one thing you can identify and say we have to we have to start here it, everything sort of gets built layer on layer you you're doing a little bit of one thing and then a little bit of something else and a little bit of something else and and it seems overwhelming but all of a sudden you get 6 months down the track and and there's there's structure and shape there and it's and it's exciting you mentioned the different cities that you've been talking to is is the plan to identify tent pole cities that you're going to be in every year or is it going to be a, a something where you're going out with RFPs annually trying to grow and establish yourself in new markets we um so we commissioned an agency to identify the key um table tennis market so looking at who plays it who watches it on TV who follows um other racket sports uh, and sort of came up with a list of of 20 or so nations that um that WTT could go into um and so that was sort of part a of the strategy is finding out where those markets or where those countries at least are um and then part b was also looking at um you know the traditional table tennis markets and where we've been before and and where our players are and overlaying the two together so that we could sort of come up with a broad strategy um obviously china being our biggest market you know we know that we need to have a, a good chunk of our events in there um but for us it's much more important that we spread the game of of table tennis so um it's not a popular sport in terms of attendance in the united states um we don't have um big events in the us and you know americans love that sort of big event experience if you look at the us open um you know look at you know the western and southern cincy event um they 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 big events you know the, the people are coming not just for the tennis they're coming for everything that goes on around it and so we needed to 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 make sure that we mapped out the some cities and countries where we wanted to have you know our marquee events or or markets where we needed to be in so um for us 
we we sort of took each of the event tiers. So we have our five five event tiers and went, um, you know, United States, perfect for a one table showy sportainment style event. Um, so we'll, we we want to put both the men's and women's champions event in different cities in the United States. Um, we have, you know, China as a, as a, as the, the sort of national sport. So we need to have a grand smash in China. It's logical for us to do that. Um, but at the same time, open-minded to go wherever, um, wherever the markets and the opportunities appear, um, with, with this, with the structure itself, um, we're open-minded. There's, there's a bit of flexibility in the way that we, we have city selection and, and what our sport will look like. Um, the, the one good thing for us is we're not selling licenses. So WTT will always own the events. Um, the model is a, a hosting fee model. So each of the, the cities will pay that sort of sanctioned fee back to WTT to, to run the events. So that gives us a bit of flexibility to, to be able to sit down with an organizer and say, in five years time, if the event isn't commercially viable or it's not, you know, reaching attendance goals, it's not, um, you know, it's not working in that location. Then we can sit, sit down and say, is there another city in that country? Or, um, you know, I think we've done, had our, had our run here. It's been great. Thanks for your contribution to the sport. We can move. But also at the same time, events that are held on an ongoing basis in a, in a city or a location, they start building legacy and, and, and history and they become part of the city psyche. And, um, you know, I, I look at um, Carl Budge, an ex-colleague of mine who runs the two, um, the men's and women's ATP and WTA events in Auckland. And Auckland just becomes tennis crazy for two weeks of the year. And, and everyone knows that the tennis is on and they build their social calendar around that. So for us, um, there is that desire to, to build WTT into a city's um, heartbeat and, and, you know, sort of take over town when, when, the, when the circus, the, the traveling sports circus comes, comes to, comes to town. So um, we've, we've, we've got some requirements for hosts to commit to, to more than just a one year agreement. Um, but we're also open-minded that if there's a city that wants to do that, we're happy to do that. But for the grand smash events, we want those to be like a Wimbledon or, or a US Open and, and spend, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years in a city and build up. It's really build up its tradition as, as one of the four pillars of the sport. What are you guys targeting for attendance at some of these? So we're not going to have 20,000 people like in Arthur Ashe each, each session. Um, and that's, that's two, twofold. I mean, Table tennis is not tennis. So our athletes are competing on a, on a space. I think it's 2.4 meters by two, like each, each end of the table is only 2.4, 2.4 meters long or, or the whole table is 2.4 meters long. I always get muddled up with table stats. Um, but so the further, further aspect spectators get away from the table, it's much harder for them to be able to enjoy that, that, that the core part of the sport. So we're looking more at a, you know, a three and a half to 5,000 seats sort of stadium capacity, either in a, in a horseshoe or amphitheater style rather than a, than the traditional square style. And, um, you know, that's the, also the great part of, of what we're doing with these events is we don't have to do things the way we were doing before either. So, um, we're playing around with some scoring formats with some structured draw formats. Um, we're moving away from an eight sided, a uh, four sided, 
um, rectangular field of play and, and, you know, making it sort of eight sided with, with gaps missing and um, which of course eight being the lucky number of China, um, you know, it sits well with them. So, you know, some stuff around that. So, um, so yeah, so we want these events to be intimate, but we also want them to be well attended. No sport looks good on TV or, or looks good in front of sponsors when, um, when they're empty. So that's why we we're sort of restructuring the, the, the way a, a table tennis event looks like in the daytime. So having that early morning session where we can play matches, get the school kids in and get, you know, get community groups in and experience the sport, have that, have those sessions at the daytime and then, you know, bang six o'clock, the after work crowd comes down, has a, has a glass of wine, watches it, watches a, a, a performance, whether it's a show or a comedian or an artist, and then bang into to some high level table tennis. You mentioned organizers. Is it primarily going to be the national governing bodies or are you also working with now some outside promoters and getting some new people into the sport? Um, yeah, so um, the, 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 all of the national associations were given the sort of first opportunity to have a chat with us and, and we reached out to them and said, look, you've been running these events in the past. We want to, um, we want you to, you know, sort of step up to the plate here and, and um, join us on this WTT journey. So we've had some really good conversations with national associations and um, they will definitely be part of the hosting mix. But what is also exciting for us is that this is the first opportunity the sport has had to have some private investment or um, sort of the commercial event focused um, organizations running sports. So we've also had some great conversations with um, different agencies and, and event promoters about running the event and also directly with cities. So, um, cause there's no hard and fast rule for us on how these events are structured. So, um, you know, if a, if a city came to us and said, we want to host an event then, and, and put up the, the funding to host the event plus run the budget, then we would sit with them and say, well, great. We have our team or we can form a team for you, or we can outsource that to, um, you know, an IMG or an Octagon or, or whoever it is in, 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 or even a real boutique sports management firm. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's cool because I'm, I'm getting to speak to lots of different, um, you know, government officials, business people, as well as our national association. So it's an exciting time. What about the players? What's their role in the formation of this and, and their say? I mean, do they get to the weigh in on how this is all being structured? Is it the traditional, there's the organization and there's the players union? Is it a combined? What's that structure? Um, yeah, I, again, this is a great opportunity for us in that um, we can take sort of the best of every sport and look at what every sport has done and, and identify that works well and that doesn't work well. So um, when I first started in the role, I spent the first three or four weeks reaching out to about 20 to 25 of the, the top male and female players to get their opinion on, um, you know, ball colours, table colours, um, what, what the player restaurant looks like, what, what they like at events, what they don't like at events. So um, they've definitely had their, their input into the process. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a tricky one in table tennis because the, the national associations actually control the players. So they control clothing. Um, they enter the players into events. They provide all of the support for the players in terms of logistics arrangements, booking flights, 
getting visas sorted, um, making hotel arrangements through the, through the individual LOCs. So um, what we want to do with WTT is, is allow the players to have the opportunity to continue in that model or to be able to become independent and, and, and start making their own scheduling decisions and wearing their own uniform instead of, you know, having to wear the uniform of the national association and um, stuff like this. So that, that's the sort of, you know, future of the sport and bringing the players on that journey. Um, but they are, they are super critical for us. And so we've, we're, we, we have established a, a WTT advisory council and, um, you know, obviously having a tennis background, it's not like the ATP or the WTA where you've got a tournament council and a, and a player council. We're going to put a whole cross section of the table tennis family into this council who then report into the WTT board. So uh, we have the current president of the CTTA as the head of the WTT advisory council. And then we'll add current players, we'll add former players, we'll have event representatives, um, WTT staff. Um, you know, we've, we've discussed the possibility of having one or two sort of fan representatives so we get a sense of what they want at an experience, having some sponsors in the mix as well. So, you know, a seat at the table for the people that are investing into the game. And then that that pool of voices will, will allow us to, you know, look at everything at a, in a 360 degree view and have everyone sitting around the one table. Whereas in other sports, you sort of have that antagonistic, we want this and we want this, and then you have to butt heads to get to where you want. If we, we've got everyone in, in, the, in the room at the same time, um, you know, the, the conversations will be hopefully much smoother, but um, politics and sport, right? <laughs> you talked about the Chinese culture really just being ingrained with table tennis and playing it in school and, and everything. But it seems like globally that participation aspect is important. And, and even the, the tagline for the ITTF is for all, for life. And that kind of speaks to the accessibility of you don't have to be a massive player to be rugby or, you know, American football. You don't have to be the quickest. You don't age out of it. You can kind of keep playing it forever. How important is that to the health of the sport and how key is that as you guys plan this new league? Yeah. Um, ever, I mean, obviously being an Aussie Christmas and, and that's all sort of holiday period for us is, is a big deal. And, at some point, every Australian has played table tennis. And, and I, I, you know, I can probably say that around the world, at some point, everyone has played table tennis in some way, shape or form. Um, whether it's, you know, someone's got a table and you have a few, few hit, a couple of rallies while you're drunk on Christmas afternoon or the day after or um, you know, Thanksgiving in the United States, people play. And... Um, there's probably that disconnect between what happens socially and what happens professionally. So we want to, one of, one of the things we did with our event structure was look at it from what happens when a, a person picks up a racket on day one and has their first table tennis experience to then be allowing them to identify if they like the sport, how they can then get to world number one. So, um, you know, we've mapped out a, a youth structure that sits below WTT, which, um, you know, now creates an entire whole of sport pathway. So we've got 
that mapped out from sort of the professional strategic growth side. And these events will hopefully have more visibility because ITTF events don't have that, that visibility. Like I didn't even know there was an Australian Open of table tennis and, you know, <laughs> I'm an Aussie. So um, we want these events through our broadcasting and, and commercial and, and, and all the marketing activities that we're going to do have that visibility. So if we get it on TV and, and we get people attending and then it, that's going to create that excitement to get people to then go and pick up the, pick up a rat and a ball and start playing. Um, and if that leads to greater grassroots participation um, or it gets people socially playing, that, then those health benefits start to come. And, and the great thing about table tennis is you don't need that infrastructure. You don't have to, you know, go to a rugby field. You don't have to go to a football field to play. You two bats and a ball, um, you know, all, all you really need is a ping pong ball because if you've got a mobile phone, you can start rallying. And, and you know, when I, when I started my social media um, accounts, because I was talking about table tennis so much, started popping up with advertising for, you know, portable nets that, that roll up and coil on themselves and you can attach them to any, any flat surface and start playing with, with, with a ball and a, and a bat. So um, that's why, you know, we're, we're excited because it, it's a sport that, that it's easy for everyone. You can be, as you said, you know, 90 years old and still play and you can be, you know, three or four and still play. And, and, and it's, it, it's surprisingly fun. Like we have a table set up in the office and staff will be, you know, working away. And then all of a sudden you hear that and you're like, ah, oh, someone's <laughs> up playing table tennis again. So if we can start, if we can start doing that and, and, you know, hopefully when we have these events, start doing more of that outreach too. So, um, being up sort of a, a CSR program where we get events to donate tables to community centers and, um, you know, places where, you know, from, from lower socioeconomic statuses and, and, you know, give people something to, to do and, 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 you know, celebrate what we're doing. And that sort of, um, you know, it's great for us and it's great for the sport and it's great for people. China is a big market for table tennis, as we've discussed. It's a market you're very familiar with from your days, not only, as a tournament director, but also you consulted with some of the tournaments there and then went there when you were working with the ATP. So you've spent a lot of time working in that market. It is a huge market and it's an important market that seemingly everybody wants to get into in some way, shape or form. It's also a complicated market. How would you describe working in China with different sports entities that you have over the years? I think the you're hundred percent right. China is, um, is a fascinating place to work. Um, the, the easiest way for me to, um, to describe China is that you've got two people, um, from two very different cultures looking at the same problem. And, um, I, I, I it's hard to, well, obviously we're, we're not on a, on a video chat, but I normally put my arms out, out wide. <laughs> and I say the Chinese are on the left side and, um, we're on the right side and the whole goal of everything we do is to meet as close to the middle as possible. And so, um, because they have their views and their perceptions on how it should be done. And, and, you know, we have our views and our perceptions on how it should be done. And so a lot of it is compromising. Um, and it's not, it's not negotiating, um, because, you know, we both want the same outcome. It's just a matter of the steps that are taken to get there. Um, and the thought processes behind that are, are, are very different up in China. But um, 
you know, they're, they're passionate. They, they love sport. It doesn't matter wh whether it's tennis or table tennis or um, Formula One or football. I've been to, you know, Chinese Super League matches. I've been to basketball matches there. They are some of the most passionate sports fans in the world. Um, and, you know, advantage for us is that, you know, table tennis is the number one sport. You know, 17 million people in China watched the men's, um, the men's finals of the world championships compared to, I think it was about 3 million that watched the final of Wimbledon. So, you know, we've got five times more people watching our, our championships than, than, other, than other sports. But yeah, it, it's funny working, you know, you've got your language hurdles, you've got your, your cultural views, um, but you make it work and, and, you know, you just enjoy that experience. You go, be your... you go in with an open mind. You, you have to, you can't go in thinking what you want to do is going to get done. And if you, if you ever go into either, I don't think it matters whether it's China or anywhere else in the world. If you go into a country and think it's going to be A, B and C, it's definitely not. And so you have to go there with an open mind and, and, you know, laugh at some of the stuff and, 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 you know, just go with the flow. Don't, don't fight the tide. I appreciate all that insight. I close uh, every episode of credentials only with something called the set pieces. It's, Okay. Half dozen questions that I, I give to everybody. Uh, I'm starting with what are podcasts or newsletters that you're using to stay informed, to, to keep educated uh, throughout the whole sports industry? So I've got a couple of subs subscriptions to some industry-based um, news programs. Um, there's a, there's a China-based um, organization and then a couple of the more traditional U.S. So um, uh, inside the games, sport cal, um, sport business, um, and the the one in China is um, skips my mind. The guys are out of um, Shanghai, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. <laughs> Send me that name. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. So everybody's going to go to credentialsonly.com <laughs> to find out what this mystery <laughs> Chinese one is. Um, who are your most valuable files on social media? The posts that you want to make sure you're you're catching. On WTT's account? Yeah, for you personally. Uh, I'm pretty selective. I'm, I'm not a, uh, my, all my accounts are private. I, I sort of made a decision early to um, keep business and, and pleasure separate. So um, I don't have a Facebook account anymore. And um, I have a very small following, only about 200 people on, on my Instagram account. And I think it's even less on Twitter. The few, the proud. Um, what are a couple books that you would recommend that people read? Does that have to be limited to sports? Uh, the new, the, the Starbucks experience is a, is a, is a pretty, pretty, pretty good read. Um, Inwards by Jung Pueblo, who is a, um, a sort of mid thirties, mid forties, um, South American based uh, or, or an, an American guy with a, with a South, a South American heritage. And his book is um, stunning. It's just all little quotes. Um, so for, for people, um, you know, that want some motivation or, you know, to, to sort of reflect on their life and what they're doing, it's quite inspirational. So he has an Instagram account as well. Um, and it pops up from time to time and it talks about relationships and, and life experience and, and, not using your emotions to cloud judgment. So it's quite a, a quite a little 
a good grounding book. I, I highly recommend that one. What are you streaming on TV? I, I'm, I'm actually not a, a big Netflix or, or Stan or HBO person. I am, um, I'm a sports watcher. So I will always watch live sport. So I will always flick through channels to see what's on because, um, in this role, you always want to see what other sports are doing. And so, um, I watch as much live sport as I can. So I can't say that I'm a, a show person, but, um, I won't miss the crown if, when each new series comes out on Netflix, I'm, I'm almost like a Royal family junkie, which is a bit, a bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> no one's judging you. This is a safe place. Don't worry. <laughs> What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? It's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not cheesy, but it's more, more sentimental and emotional. Um, we all played soccer as kids. Um, my brother, sister and I, and my dad was the coach of, of the team. So always that opportunity to, to be driven around, um, with dad as the coach from place to place. And you, and you know, you, you wake up early at seven thirty on a Saturday morning and you rush and you put your boots on and, um, you know, jump into the car with dad and then, and then after each match, my grandmother was a big supporter of us. So she would travel all over Sydney to watch us play. And each of these football grounds had like a canteen or a tuck shop. And um, her thing was always buying us a, a hot dog and a can of Coke after each match and, and sitting there and watching the next match. But it was just, it was all, it was like a religious activity for us. She was, she worshipped us and we got to do that. So that's probably my, my biggest sports memory as a kid at, at, at that local level. And I was, I was 20, so not quite a kid, but I, I got to go to the Sydney Olympics and um, I was just blown away by that, by that event and the world of sport. And so from there, I've just always wanted to work in it. And the Olympics are incredible, but in your hometown has to be just something else altogether. Oh, the, the, the city completely changed. You, you just... Everywhere you went, everyone was happy. Everyone was relaxed. They're having a good time. You had all of these, you'd go out and, you know, obviously the drinking age in, in Australia is 18. So, um, you know, I was able to go out and you'd go to a bar and there'd be athletes there. They'd be wearing their like Olympic, like team apparel out in public because they wanted to, you know, let people know they were Olympians and um, you know, all these little different bars. There was the, you know, the Dutch bar and all this sort of stuff. And, and it was just phenomenal. Everyone was absorbed by this juggernaut that rolled into town. It was, it was, it was sensational. And then just, I remember walking down Olympic Boulevard at the, at the Olympic site because I, I funnily enough, I actually went to tennis at the Olympics. Oh, um, wow. Back in 2000, I watched Gabriella Sabatini play. Um, but I remember leaving the tennis and the tennis had finished and the hockey had finished and the athletics was the, 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 the day session of the athletics was finished. And the Olympic Boulevard was just packed. There was just this massive sea of people. And I was like, unbelievable. This is so phenomenal. How sport brings people together. That's an awesome memory and, and was an awesome Olympics. My last question, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Um, I actually do. I have every single credential I've ever, um, <laughs> I've ever, I've ever received. Um, so I, I have them stored, unfortunately, cause I left them at home in Sydney. 
but I have about eight or nine boxes of credentials. Um, most of them shoe boxes, but they're sitting in a, in a big box. And um, my, my headspace around my credentials is to wait until I've finished working in sport and then take all of those credentials and give them to an artist, uh, an up and coming artist and give them the opportunity to create something, whether it's a, a wall or a, a map of the world where, with all of the credentials that, that have shown where I've traveled to or some sort of sculpture piece or something like that. I think that would be, that would be pretty cool. But yeah, I'm a credential hoarder. You're, you're not alone. I'm actually been surprised that there have been a few who have it because to me, it's a no brainer. Of course you keep them, of course, but yeah. not everybody does it that way. So would love to follow up 15, 20, 30 years down the road to see what you have ultimately done with all those shoe boxes worth. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I appreciate I'm about to, I was going to say, I'm about to start collecting again in this new role. So um, I thought, I thought the collection had been limited to one or two a year, but um, nope going to start with 30 or 40 events every year <laughs> and some new cities to tick off on the map as well which is great indeed well i appreciate the time it's uh great to hear about something so unique to get in on the ground floor with the sport so eager to see what happens and uh, maybe come back to you in a year's time just to see how year one of wtt has gone that would be great um it's exciting as i said you know new sport new rules new vision, new future. I think it's the next 12 months um, are going to be um, pretty insane and, and, and pretty amazing. Steven, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Pete. Really appreciate it. That was a really interesting conversation to learn about all the different aspects that need to be considered when putting together something new like this. It'll be very interesting to see how it all comes together for the WTT. A big thanks to Steven for taking time out of his birthday week to join the podcast. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, you can find out more on what we discussed in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Once again, please take a moment to review Credentials Only wherever you are accessing your podcast. Lastly, thanks to Mike Fuchet for editing Credentials Only, which is a Ultra Media production.